Morning, CFC. Elias, I'm moving your sign over. My feet are way too big to say on that step. Hello, my name is Nathan Miller. Um, some of you may not know who I am, but that's who I am. For the rest of you, I, I should be familiar. I'm on staff here at Christian Fellowship Church, not assistant pastor, assistant to the pastor, for those of you who are <laughs> office fans. Um, you notice that, yes, I am not the pastor. Lucas uh, is the one that normally preaches week to week. Um, and while, on one hand, he is far more skilled than I am at preaching, I mean, he teaches other pastors to preach, on the other hand, we're both just men, both just men trying to proclaim the word of God faithfully. And our desire is to get out of the way so that God can speak to you um, through what we say. So in that effort, please pray with me that I may do that well. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, here we come to listen to your word, to learn from Matthew 2, how Jesus came, and how the wise men came to give him gifts and to worship him, and Lord, how there are opposing kings in this world, but Lord, that you reign. Please guide, guide me as I preach. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. May your truth sanctify us, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray that. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2, covering the whole chapter today. Sometimes in Christmas stories, we just cover um, the portion of the wise men, and we stop there. Oh, they gave their gifts, and let's move on. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I know Christmas was yesterday, but yes, we still have decorations up, and yes, Jesus is still king. You may be familiar with the story called The Emperor's Clothes. If you don't, let me give you a short explanation. I read, the, I read the thing last night. It's surprisingly longer than I remembered it. But the gist of it is this, that there was an emperor or a king who loved clothes. He was very proud. The story says they had a coat for every hour of the day. Very proud man. And these swindlers come to his kingdom and say, hey, we have some invisible thread. We can make some clothes for you. And that only those who are worthy of their position will be able to see it. Obviously, these men are swindlers. They're just trying to make some money for, for nothing. But the king is, in his pride, he's interested. And so he lets them, lets these swindlers make his clothes for him. He puts them on. And boy, they're so light, barely feel them. And he proceeds to display himself to the kingdom with invisible clothes. And the subjects of this kingdom, they're all, wow, king, beautiful clothes. Until one little kid raises their hand, he's not wearing any clothes, mom. Thankfully, we don't see such arrogance on display in our leadership to that degree. 
But we do know stories of leaders, both in this country and in others, where they're foolish. At least in our eyes, it might be foolish. They're proud. They're arrogant. They use their wealth, their position for their advantage. We feel that. We say, you fool! How dare you? Can't you be a decent king? Can't you be a decent president, a decent governor, decent mayor, decent representative of me? Well, I present to you what Matthew says in chapter 2, that there is a good king, a legitimate king. That the rest of the kings of this world, however foolish, however proud, even if they might be decent, cannot match this king. This king is far better. Now, we come to Matthew 2, to another story. Matthew 2 is a narrative. It presents characters and a plot and a setting. So we need to pay attention as we read to these different characters, where they are, what they're doing, and why. Uh, unlike the emperor's clothes, this is a true story. We need to pay attention to how this passage, this story, teaches us. So let's begin Matthew 2, verse 1, to see the characters involved in this story about kings. It says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Verse 1, we're introduced to the major players of this passage. Jesus, main character. Main character of the whole Bible, but at least for this story, right there, Front and center is Jesus. What did he do? He was born. Born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew chapter 1 describes how Jesus is in the line of Abraham and David and the exiled Israelites. And now here he is, born to the Virgin Mary. Now he is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Christ. There's the main character, Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. When in the days of Herod the king, yet another character we're interacting with, another king. Jesus in the line of David the king, and Herod the king, though not in the line of David. These are the characters we have to pay attention to as the story progresses. Jesus and Herod. We'll find that Jesus is a legitimate king, king worthy of worship, and Herod, the opposition, is fighting against that with all that he can. Let me introduce you to a few side characters, the wise men. Again, at the end of verse 1, it says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Who are these wise men? Sometimes they're referred to as magi. Sometimes we say, We three kings of Orient are. We're not quite sure if they actually were kings. The Greek says magi. Maybe there's something magical that they did. Maybe they were magicians in some royal court somewhere, some religious experts. 
We aren't sure. They likely weren't kings. We know that there were probably more than three of them, despite what our nativities might say. But here they come, these important figures from far away somewhere, coming to Jerusalem. Coming to see Jesus. They ask for him. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're looking for Jesus, the king. We already see Jesus as the king prophesied in scripture, the one that the nations would come to. These wise men coming from afar to see Jesus. The baby. Note, they did not say, where is he who will be king? It's not that they said, Jesus, who after he dies and is resurrected will be king, but he who has been born king, king of the Jews. Jesus at his birth is king. I read something the other day that said, many babies have become kings, but only one king has become a baby. That's Jesus. He was already king before his birth. I think sometimes we look at baby Jesus and say, oh, look what he'll become. Look what he's going to do someday. But he already is king. He already is king. And the wise men from afar knew that. We'll find that so did Herod. They ask him, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? They're looking for him. How do they know that the, even to look for him to begin with? How do they know where to come from and where to go? They say this, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What's the star? Again, like the wise men, there's some possible answers. Some people think the star is Halley's Comet. Some people think it's a, just a regular star in the sky. A supernatural star that God placed there temporarily for them to follow. Maybe an angel. In any of those options, we see God is the one directing these people toward the Son, Jesus Christ. To go and worship him. That is their intent. To worship the king. The, Jesus is the king. Not because of anything he has yet done, but because of who he is. He simply is king. Didn't need to be elected. Didn't need to be born of Joseph and Mary, who were already the king and queen. In fact, they were, they were peasants. They were nobodies. But God chose them. That's the virgin that will conceive and bear a son who called Emmanuel, who will be named Jesus, the king. And they come to worship so Jesus, the king, draws the nations in. The father guides them, says, come, worship my son. Worship the king. A note that came to Jerusalem. Who are they asking this question to? Here's where the second character comes in, Herod. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Note Herod. The king, king of what? 
apparently the king of Jerusalem. Maybe he thought he was king of the Jews. Give you some historical context about Herod. Herod was an awful king. Absolutely horrid individual. He usurped the throne because he was buddies with Rome. Said, hey, come on, man. I'll, I'll support you. Look at these guys trying to become king. Make, make me king, and I'll, I'll obey everything you say, Rome. Just make me king. That's the kind of guy he was. And not only that, there's a legend that says Caesar Augustus said of Herod, I would rather be his pig than his son. Rather be his pig than his son. Herod was known to murder his own family to protect his throne. And here he is hearing of the king of the Jews being born. He's like, wait, 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 hold on. I'm troubled. He's agitated. It doesn't sit right with him. He's not motivated to worship. He's motivated to be troubled. Like, huh, I need to do something about this. And not just him, but all Jerusalem with him. And I don't think it means every single citizen of Jerusalem is troubled, but that his court, his cronies, his supporters, those that follow Herod, they themselves are troubled with him because they, they, like, they like their position. They like their wealth. They like the support that they have. They're buddy-buddy with Herod. They're buddy-buddy with Rome. So how dare this king of the Jews come and try to take what's ours? So Herod's like, wait a minute, hold on. Where's this guy? Let me ask my, let me ask my people, my scribes. Verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. This is from Micah chapter 5. It says this, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod, the priests and scribes knew where this king of the Jews was going to be. They knew where the Christ was to be born. They knew that a king would rise who would actually shepherd the people. Not lead them astray. Not lead them to the wolves but shepherd the people of Israel. Be a good king. Not a king that likes to buddy-buddy with the bad guys to get what he wants. They knew where he was, but they didn't bother to go and worship him. They didn't recognize Jesus' kingship. They didn't want to go worship him. We'll find that out clearly in the following verses. We see here, Herod is conniving yet again. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod as I said, conniving yet again. He connived to get the throne. He's gathering these priests and scribes, trying to gather all of his information. 
Now he's bringing the wise men in secretly so as not to make himself look like a fool or like a liar or to upset the people. But he's gathering these wise men secretly, the wise men who have come to worship the king. He says, hey, why don't you tell me so I can go worship him too, wink, wink. The wise men buy it initially. So, okay. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. They're none the wiser, ironically. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. God again leading these wise men to Jesus. Continuing in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Stop there. No, when they hear of Jesus, when they see him, they did what they intended to do. They came to worship, and here they are rejoicing. It literally, in, in the Greek says, they rejoice with great joy very much. There's muchness to the joy. There's, it's so great. It's jubilant. Maybe yesterday when you saw children or grandchildren or, or cousins or whoever come downstairs or out of their bedrooms to see the Christmas tree, all the presents underneath is, ah, yes, let's go. Mom, Dad, wake up. Come on, wake up. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Woo. Let's go in. Maybe that's what the wise men were doing. All these guys from the east like, woohoo! let's get in. What are you doing? Come on. Ishmael, let's get in there. What are we waiting for? Let's go worship the king. We found him. We found him. Let's go worship him. That's what they did. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Fell down prostrate before this baby. He hadn't done anything. He's not even two years old yet. But here he is, the king, the Christ, the one promise. And they recognize it. That Jesus is indeed the king already who has been born king of the Jews. Who has been born their king. King of the Jews and the king of the east as, to, as well. They worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gifts of kings. Gifts of such value. Gold has maintained that value today. Frankincense, maybe not so much. We make a bunch of essential oils out of it, I guess. But back then, wow! Be able to smell good? That was something else. And myrrh? Sometimes I forget what myrrh is. I don't even know. We don't really use it today. But again, a very fragrant, aromatic, a, a, a perfume. They did use it on, on buried bodies at times. But these gifts are ones of extreme wealth, abundance, and here they are traveling all this way to give them to Jesus. Give them to Jesus. If only we recognize the kingship of Jesus 
as joyfully, as gratefully, as committedly as these wise men did. I think we do look at these pictures in the nativity scenes, seeing baby Jesus, little plastic version of himself, says, oh, look how helpless. Again, what great things he'll do someday. We need to see him as king. King of the Jews at birth, king of the Jews at the cross, with a sign nailed over him. In Matthew 27, king of the Jews then, king of the Jews now. King of me, king of you, whether you realize it or not. Herod didn't want to confess that. The the scribes and priests, they knew that the Christ was going to be born, but they didn't bother to go worship him, to give him gifts. Used secrecy and conniving to maintain their positions. I know we see leaders doing that today. All through history we've seen that. I think we do it ourselves too. We like to hide things up. Put one face in public, even here at church, and another face at home. We like to hold on to our kingdoms. Hold on to our thrones. My way or the highway. What I expect, I better get. I need to hold on to my gold. I need to hold on to my money. Hold on to my paycheck. It's mine. I earned it. We need to give it to the king. The king who is king, whether we recognize it or not. There's sometimes a, a call, an exhortation in churches. I've heard it growing up. It's been said here, I'm sure. It's a good one. But we need to remember. Now here's what the phrase is. It says, make Jesus your king today. I think it's a good statement. I'm sure, I've, I've said it, I'm sure. We need to realize that Jesus is already your king. It's whether you'll fall before him. Or are you going to stand defiantly, shaking your hand, say no. You're going to side with Jesus or you're going to side with Herod? Do you give over your hobbies to your king? Use them for his glory. Or do they take up so much of your time you aren't willing to even come to church or serve or take care of your family? In your marriage, do you expect so much of your spouse that if they don't meet your demands, you get angry? Well, fine, I'm just I'm gonna leave you then. I'm gonna do what I want. Or do you realize your king has commanded you to love your spouse and so you do it, even when it's hard? Do you sacrifice? Do you give to his church? We just talked about tithes and offerings. Do you give of your gold, your frankincense, your myrrh, your time, your paycheck, your house, your clothes, your extra uh, 20 bucks that month to diapers to give to the baby bank here? Do you give of what you have to your king? Now, you may be wondering, <laughs> wow, he's, he's king already. I mean, he can just do what he wants. Indeed, God can do what he wants. 
but there's still a motivation to willingly and joyfully serve him. The wise men did it. Why? Because our king is good. Our king is humble. The king himself sacrifices for his, his kingdom citizens, for his subjects. He loves his people. While the opposition, Herod, and others like him, they're evil, furious, selfish, conniving. And we'll see that opposition and the humility of Christ in the following verses. Verse 12, we start to see the story of Jesus and Herod shift to be more confrontational. Verse 12, and being warned in a dream, this is the wise men, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men now are catching on that Herod is up to no good. That the king, Jesus Christ, will be opposed by Herod in very wicked ways. But God himself is warning the wise men, hey, go this way because I'm going to protect my son. We see the Lord doing that again to Joseph, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said this, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. There's his motive. That's why he wants to know where Christ is. Wants to kill him. This toddler, this baby, is a threat to his throne in his eyes. What a wicked man. Willing to kill his sons, his wife, and even the Christ. He knows he's the Christ. The scribes, the priests told him so from Scripture. Herod refuses to bend the knee. Verse 14, and he, Joseph, he rose. He obeyed what God said through the angel in his dream. Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Maybe your Bible has a footnote that says this passage is from Hosea chapter 11, uh, verse 1. If you go back and read that chapter, you'll realize that that passage is about God speaking to Israel. What you need to know about Matthew is sometimes when he uses these Old Testament passages, talks to them about being a prophecy or that Jesus fulfilled it, we need to remember what prophecy is. It's not always predictive. It's not like, I predict that it will rain tomorrow. That's not what, we shouldn't limit prophecy to that. We see here is that Matthew is saying, look, Jesus is the new Israel. He fulfills what Israel 
was supposed to be. And Hosea chapter 11 shows that the Father, the Lord, loves Israel. He says, hey, look what I've done for you. I've called you out of Egypt. My son, my child, I've loved you. I'm, I'm protecting you. I'm saving you. And here the Father is saving Jesus from the hand of Herod, as he did Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. The, di- the difference this time is that Jesus is going to do what Israel could not. It's going to save God's people. Not just from Pharaoh, not just from Herod, but from sin and death. There is a plan here that the sovereign God is directing. He directed the wise men by the star. He directed them by a dream to avoid Pharaoh. He's directing Joseph to go to Egypt, all to protect this baby, this king. So out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is going to reign. Ain't no Herod going to steal that throne from him. Though he may try, and indeed he does try. If Jesus is a type of Israel, which he is, Herod is a type of Pharaoh. Read verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod, in his fury, slaughtered indeed hundreds, if not more. I I don't know the population of the two-year-old boys in that city. But he slaughtered them all to cover his bases. He was initially just going to kill the one baby, but then he became so furious that his plans were thwarted that he wiped them all out. This furious, evil, wicked king. People still followed him. Why do we follow wicked kings? Why don't we see what God has done in Jesus? So blinded by sin. This passage from Jeremiah, it's from Jeremiah 31. It's about the exile. The Israelites back in the Old Testament were taken by Assyria and Babylon. There was indeed much weeping because they were taken from their home. Families ripped apart, killed. They're crying out to God. Lamenting, won't you save us from the fury of the Assyrian king, from the Babylonian king. Please, Lord, we're lamenting. Jeremiah continues in that chapter to say, the Lord hears his people. For the lament turns to hope and the mourning turns to joy. And he goes on to talk of a new covenant that he will write his law upon the hearts of his people. 
here in Matthew 2, I think implicitly he's saying Jesus is the answer here. Jesus. You'll notice, at least in these verses so far, from 13 to where we are, you see Jesus, then Herod, and now we're about to see a section on Jesus again. A back and forth comparison between these two kings. Jesus, the new Israel, beloved by God the Father, destined for a purpose. Saved from the slaughter of babies. He's not only the new Israel, he's the new Moses. Remember Moses? He was saved from the slaughter of Pharaoh, plucked from the river to save his people. I hear Jesus is plucked from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt that he will save my people. He will turn their mourning to joy, their lamentation to hope. Not just from furious kings, but from sin and death. Indeed, we who are faithful to Christ so clearly see the fury of evil kings. In some ways, we can share in the lament of verse 18. We see babies slaughtered today. Millions and millions of babies slaughtered. Under a cruel and wicked system. Evil kings. Who would rather keep their office than stop killing babies. We see other areas of the world too where Christians are slaughtered just because they're Christian. How dare you try to change what's going on here? Jesus has no place here. We'll bend the knee to ourselves only. I bow to no man. How wicked. Thankfully, and praise be to God that no matter what fury we endure here, that we have a king who cares. We have a delivering king who saves us from that morning and that the Herods don't live forever. Verse 19, but when Herod died, indeed he did die. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now you might be thinking, some might be anyway, maybe others then thought this too. Okay, now, Herod's dead. It's an empty throne now, right? So Jesus can now take it, and everything will be right. The Christ will come. He'll, he'll throw off Rome. And in power and might, he'll take what's rightfully his. Revelation and other passages teach us that, yes, that will happen, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And he'll slaughter the earthly kings who oppose him. But here, as a baby, that time is not yet. This king, who is king, is humble. 
and he does things the way his father has directed. Verse 21, And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Herod's dead, but another wicked king has arisen. The cycle of evil seems to continue to go on and on. The fury of these kings. But the answer that God gives us is that Jesus be the Nazarene. Now, if you happen to get online and Google search Nazarene in the Old Testament, you're not going to find anything. You might find some words that sound similar. You're not going to find Nazarene. There's no text in the Old Testament that says the Messiah, the Christ, that Jesus would be a Nazarene. So what does Matthew mean? Come on, Matthew. You used Micah, you used Hosea, you used Jeremiah. Why can't you use a specific passage here too? What does it mean? The prophecies that were fulfilled were those that said Jesus would be called a Nazarene. There's a couple options, but I think the two that are most likely are one is that Nazarene is uh, derived from a, a Hebrew word, netzer, meaning branch. Isaiah 11 says that the, the, a root shall arise from the stump of Jesse, the line of David, and a branch will come. And he will rule. And be, be fruitful for his people. This branch, this is Jesus. The netzer, the branch, the Nazarene. Come in the line of David, as Matthew, as we already know from Matthew 1. Here he is. And I think the other thing we pick up from Jesus being the Nazarene are the prophecies in Isaiah 53, I believe, and other passages that see that Jesus will be scorned, be mocked. Now, why do I say this? What about being a Nazarene means that Jesus will be mocked and scorned? Well, you remember Nathaniel, and I hate that I share a name with him sometimes. But he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a hint that, hey, people from Nazareth, Nazarenes, they're worth nothing. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Can any king come from there? God says, yes. My king. The one I've chosen. This is my son, the father says. And I have set him as king over my people. And unlike Herod, who connives and does wicked things to try to 
grasp onto his throne, this Jesus, who is already king, became a baby. Became a Nazarene. Scorned and mocked. Became, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To save his people from their sins. To be a shepherd. To guide his people back. You may or may not know that followers of Jesus gained a quick reputation. Indeed, even the term Christian comes from that time, early on. They became known as little, little Christ, they, the followers of Christ. Followers of Christ of Nazareth. They shared that name with Jesus. They shared that name with their king. Like soldiers who wear the country's flag on their arm, they bore the name Christian. And at once, it's a symbol of pride. Like Netzer, right? Jesus is the king from David. Whoa, he's the Netzer? He's the branch of, of David's line? Wow. He's also the Nazarene. Christians? Wow. I follow Christ? Yes. Oh, you follow Christ? How dare you? Do we share in the scorn of Christ? Do we follow our king? Do we humble ourselves before our king? And say, hey, if they mock my king, they can mock me. I will follow him unto death. Even death under Herod. Or death of the wicked rulers of our time. Our king is good. His life. And yes, indeed, he will come again. To judge all wicked kings. There will be no more cycle of Herod, Archelaus, Pharaoh, Rome, and whoever else. Dares to shake their fist at God. So I urge you to, to turn to your king. Fall before him and worship. Be not afraid to share in the scorn of his name. 